In his book, The Australian Victories in France in 1918, General Sir John Monash wrote, The true role of infantry was not to expend itself upon heroic physical effort, not to wither away under merciless machine-gun fire, not to impale itself upon hostile bayonets, nor to tear itself to pieces in hostile entanglements, but, on the contrary, to advance under maximum possible protection of the maximum possible array of mechanical resources, in the form of guns, machine-guns, tanks, mortars and aeroplanes, to advance with as little impediment as possible, to be relieved as far as possible of the obligation to fight their way forward, to march resolutely, regardless of the din and tumult of battle, to the appointed goal, and there to hold and defend the territory gained, and to gather in the form of prisoners, guns and stores, the fruits of victory. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Australian Stories in Military History. I'm Peter Flapman. On the 4th of July in 1918, during World War I, a battle took place around the town of Le Hamel in northern France. Though relatively small in scale, the operation was to have far-reaching consequences in concepts of modern warfare, and for how the war on the Western Front was to be conducted by the Allies until its conclusion in November. The operation, planned by Lieutenant General Sir John Monash, would be successfully executed by his new command, the Australian Corps. It would be the first time Australian and American soldiers shared the field of battle together. Joining me this episode to discuss the operation is Stephen Dando Collins, author of the book Heroes of Hamel. Stephen is the award-winning author of 44 books, including children's novels and biographies. The majority of his works deal with military history, ranging from Greek and Roman times to American 19th century history and World War I and World War II. Stephen's latest book is the biography Cyrus the Great. In 2021, he will be releasing Conquering Jerusalem. Stephen Dando Collins, thank you very much for coming on to the episode. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be with you. So looking at that for time, the events leading up to the 4th of July, what was the state of the Western Front at this stage? It was just following, it was well, just after the uh, German Spring Offensive, I believe. Exactly. So uh, both sides were, were dusting off and licking their wounds mm-hmm. after Operation Michael, as the Germans called their Spring Offensive, which had driven uh, the, the Allies back uh, a considerable distance from their, their lines uh, on the Western Front. And uh, so on May 30th uh, of uh, 1918, uh, the Australian Corps receives a new commander, and this is uh, General Monash, uh, who had previously been commanding the Australian 3rd Division. And uh, he came to this post determined uh, to go on the offensive. By this stage, his British superiors uh, were quite content to, to, to stick where they were, and, uh, as I say, licked their wounds, and were, were very wary of going on the offensive. Uh, and, uh, but, but Monash came to the job uh, determined uh, that uh, his Australians would uh, lead the way and show the British uh, how it was going to be done uh, to, in driving uh, the Germans back, not only from the gains they'd made in the spring offensive, particularly mm. on the Somme, where the Australians, most of the Australians were based, uh, but he was determined to drive them all the way to the Hindenburg line. John Monash is an interesting character. Comes from a, for this time, it's, it's really quite a non-conventional background. 
Very much so. Mm. Uh, really interesting guy. I would have loved to, have, at very mm. least, have had dinner with him. <laughs> um, number one, he was Jew. Number one, he was Jewish, and so it was unheard of for a, 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 a Jewish person to be to, to be of such high rank. Um, and he came from a, an engineering uh, background in Melbourne. He'd been uh, building bridges and uh, uh, dealing uh, in concrete in Melbourne, and. Uh, uh, prior to the war, but he had been a militia officer, and particularly an artillery officer. So he he um, uh, went to Gallipoli as a, a colonel, and um, uh, would be the, the first to have admitted that he made a lot of mistakes there, as, as many Allied commanders did. But he learnt from them, and uh, so um, he took uh, his engineering and artillery background with him as he's gradually promoted. Uh, and uh, becomes commander of the, the 3rd Division. So by the time he becomes uh, commander of the Australian Corps, uh, he's ready to use that in engineering and artillery background uh, to, to exploit it. Um, uh, he was also interesting in that, that uh, he had a wife back in uh, and a daughter back in Melbourne, uh, he, who he wrote to lovingly and frequently, mm. and uh, his letters home to, to Vic, her name was, uh, were a, a, a great sources of information. But he also had a mistress in London who, <laughs> who, had been, uh, who was the best friend of his wife. <laughs> so he was a, a, a very colourful character indeed. Yes. And, uh, uh, but um, he, was, uh, he was called the old man by his, his own troops. Uh, I think he was 57 by the time he, he became commander of the Australian Corps. Uh, and he was perhaps a little bit uh, old uh, for, uh, for the job uh, in, in, the, in the eyes of some, um, but he was, he was determined to make his mark. So, so uh, I, I should explain what the Australian Corps uh, was. Yes. Uh, so the uh, Australians on the, uh, went to the Western Front after Gallipoli, and uh, they um, were formed into the Australian and New Zealand Corps for Gallipoli, Anzac, uh, but by the time they get to the Western Front, uh, a dedicated Australian Corps is created. And so by the time Monash took command of it, it comprised four divisions of infantry uh, plus numerous support units. He actually had 166,000 men under his command. That's um, incredible. This was ten, that was a huge, huge army. When, when you think, he, he himself pointed out, uh, this was two and a half times size of the army uh, that... Uh, Wellington had at Waterloo, yes. and likewise, at the two and a half times size of the army that Napoleon yes. had at Waterloo. It was um, 10,000 more men than actually landed um, at, uh, on D-Day in, in France in World War II. So it's a massive army, uh, and about 50,000 of these 166,000 men were British, uh, but the majority were Australian, and he, he even had 1,000... Uh, by the time he took command, a thousand American engineers had also been allocated to his unit, and he also had the uh, uh, an Australian uh, squadron of the um, Australian Flying Corps, uh, and it was self-supporting. So he's got artillery, he's got aircraft, uh, and he also had uh, tanks of the uh, British Tank Corps. So he he he's got a a, a very uh, you know, well-equipped army, and he's determined. Uh, to put this to good use. And this comes into the, the concept of combined arms because Monash's approach to war, I've seen a quote, the army as a machine and the battle plan being a score for an or orchestral composition. 
Exactly. And he said every instrument has to come in at exactly the right time uh, if there is to be a, you know, a, a harmonious melody. Uh, so he, he also approached it very much in, like a businessman. He'd been a businessman, obviously, as an engineer running his uh, business in Melbourne. And he said uh, every battle plan is like a business plan. And uh, you know, so uh, he, he uh, approached it in, in non-military terms, both, as you say, the musical score and, and as a businessman. Now, of course, the Australians only represented uh, something like 5% of, of the Allied forces. Um, so, so you know, on, on a grand scale, uh, the, the, the Australian numbers were not going to make a huge impact. Uh, but uh, by focusing the Australians on particular uh, objectives, as would happen with the Battle of Hamel, uh, he was able to use their, uh, their skills uh, uh, to, to great great um, uh, great reward. Uh, now, the Australians and the Canadians were considered by both the, the Allies, uh, also the British, and also the Germans as the elite troops on, on the Western Front. But again, uh, there, were, there were a similar number of uh, Canadians in the Allied armies. And uh, you know, even though they were they achieved uh, great things, they just did not have the numbers to, uh, to make a big difference uh, so, uh, uh, and later in the war, uh, Monash was able to bring the Canadians, uh, combine the Canadians and the Australians to great effect. The Battle of Hamel, uh, which we'll be discussing in more detail, um, was 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 the uh, the prototype for the the, uh, the type of, com as you say, combined arms uh, approach uh, that Monash would introduce to the Allies, and uh, used most effectively. Uh, a month after the Battle of Hamel, at the Battle of Amiens, uh, when uh, hundreds of thousands of Allied troops, Australians, Canadians, British, uh, and with uh, French support, um, shattered the the German army. And the German commander would say, Ludendorff, would say this was the German army's blackest day uh, ever. And uh, uh, so the Battle of Hamel becomes the... Uh, this, is, this is Monash's opportunity to prove to his superiors. Now, he's answerable to a British general by the name of Rawlinson, who in turn is answerable to Field Marshal Haig, the British commander-in-chief. And uh, so Monash has to convince his superiors that his, uh, his ideas will work. And now Rawlinson was an interesting character, um, a Brit, as I say, yes. uh, and he, as we found out after the war, he didn't like Monash at all. He called him a slippery, creepy, crawly Jew in a letter to a friend. Uh, but uh, I'm sure Monash would have been a, aware of, uh, of, of Rawlinson's anti-Semitism, but uh, never publicly said anything uh, about it or about Rawlinson and did nothing but, but praise Rawlinson in, in public. Um, so, but Rawlinson was a very ambitious man, uh, and he could see that Monash had uh, Field Marshal Haig's ear. Haig... Yeah, has come in for a lot of criticism uh, you know, since World War One uh, and during World War One, uh, and a, a, a much of it justified for his uh, his approach to the war, which was you know just throw more men, men in and we'll we'll win, and this you know caused millions of casualties. But uh, to his credit, he saw the value of tanks when many others uh, didn't, and, and this, this was this new form of uh, of warfare, and uh, he also saw in Monash. Uh, a, a brilliant uh, general. Field Marshal Montgomery uh, would later say that he felt the best general on the Western Front in the First World War. He was a, he was a, um, 
uh, a colonel at the time. Uh, uh, he felt that uh, Monash was by far the best general on the West, Western Front, the most imaginative. And Haig saw this as well. So uh, he, he rather liked Monash. So Rawlinson, to keep sweet with his boss, uh, Haig, uh, was prepared to give uh, Monash a hearing when Monash comes to him very quickly after he takes command of the Australian Corps and at the end of May uh, 1918 and uh, uh, says... I, I'd like to, to uh, uh, smooth out the front at Hamel. The Germans had uh, pushed forward. In, in, if you looked at it on the map, there was this bubble into the Allied lines. And he said, I'd like to smooth out the line uh, because they've, in that area, they've got uh, high ground, uh, so their artillery is, is, is commanding our lines. Um, and, uh, and I'd like to experiment by using this, this new approach of combined arms. So Rawlinson, uh, his attitude was, well, if we're successful, I'll take credit, and uh, if they fail, I'll blame the Australians. So he, he felt he was on a win-win, <laughs> win-win situation. Yeah. So um, after uh, Monash uh, got his uh, staff officers to put together an, an immensely detailed plan with many, many points, uh, he took it to Rawlinson, and Rawlinson said, right, I'll take it to Haig, and he did. And Haig came back uh, fairly quickly, after about a week, and gave approval for everything that Monash asked for. Monash asked for more artillery, so the British gave him um, uh, more um, uh, regiments of artillery, uh, loaned him, uh, and also gave him um, the number nine squadron Royal Air Force to double the number of his aircraft. Uh, and um, so his army increased uh, to 200,000 men and so he's got this, uh, this huge force but uh, for the, the Battle of Hamel he chooses his best troops and he knows that uh, Americans uh, are, are being posted to uh, the Australians uh, for training purposes and he gets this idea he was a great fan of the Americans uh, a great reader of American history uh, read enormously about the uh, Civil War battles and uh, and he felt that he was an opportunity to give the Americans some experience uh, under the wings of the Australians. So um, he also proposes that they bring in several thousand of these uh, American troops uh, into the, the force, which will be a combined force, therefore, of Australians, uh, British and Americans. And the American commanders uh, on the ground love the idea. And so... Uh, Men from the 131st and 132nd uh, regiments of the, from the American 33rd uh, Division are um, posted to the Australians uh, to go into the battle, uh, which is going to be wonderful until the American Commander-in-Chief, General Pershing, finds out, <laughs> and he doesn't want this to yes. he doesn't want this to happen at all. Uh, Pershing. Uh, and if you put yourself in his shoes, you can understand his attitude. He didn't want his troops broken up and salted between in, uh, uh, British units, as he saw it. Uh, you know, Australians were considered British. Uh, he was trying to build up his strength so that the Americans went in en masse as an American army. Um, so when he finds out about it, he, he contacts his, uh, uh, his generals on the ground, the commander of the 33rd Division, and says, uh, uh, yeah, I don't want this to happen. And so by this stage, the Americans have actually marched in uh, we, we're talking June now, uh, 1918. The Americans have marched in and joined the Australians, and 
it's, it's love at first sight. The Yanks and the, the Aussies get on famously. Uh, they, you know, one officer said the only thing is that you know, we, we speak a little with, with different accents uh, and uh, the Yanks like coffee and we like tea, but otherwise we're like brothers. And they got on famous, got on really well. So the Yanks were really looking forward to it. They hadn't really uh, experienced a... Um, uh, a, a proper battle prior to this on the offensive. They'd been involved in defensive operations. And Americans had been involved a month earlier at, at Continue where they, um, uh, an American division had pushed forward to occupy a wood. But it, it, uh, you know, the Germans didn't uh, offer much resistance. They pulled out. So uh, this was the Americans' opportunity to, uh, to uh, show their mettle and, uh, and uh, you know, win themselves some glory. Because I understand it was initially uh, we were looking at about maybe uh, 10 companies participating. Um, yes. Pershing intervenes. Some were pulled out, but there was still, but we managed to retain about four companies. Yes, about uh, 2,000 Americans stayed with us. Oh, that's uh, uh, with, with the Australians. Mm. Uh, but, but via sleight of hand, because as I said, Pershing yes. it, it instructed. Uh, uh, the uh, commander of the 33rd Division, to withdraw his troops. So mm-hmm. the order had gone down, but uh, as it got further down the line, yeah, the, the, uh, the commanders uh, um, uh, were, were most reluctant. So half of the Americans, the original 4,000, were made to uh, withdraw. And uh, you know, there are accounts from the Australians of seeing Americans march away with tears in their eyes because they were so brokenhearted that they couldn't participate in the, in the battle. Um, but... Uh, they managed to keep 2,000 there. They literally disobeyed uh, Pershing uh, because they were determined to, to, you know, they wanted the, their men to get the experience. So 2,000 Americans remain. Uh, this is in addition to the 1,000, uh, which nobody had, they'd all forgotten about, the 1,000 American engineers of uh, the 108th uh, who were still with the Australians and uh, were, were going to be involved in the battle anyway. So... Um, uh, Monash wasn't very happy about this, losing 2,000 Americans on the eve of the battle, uh, within days of it. Uh, he's also having to put up with the fact that Billy Hughes, the Australian Prime Minister, has decided to pay a visit to the front and, and takes up his time. He wants, he wants Monash to take him on a guided tour around the Australian units, which he does the day before the battle. <laughs> and so Monash has to pull uh, representative groups of uh, troops out of the line to stand and listen to uh, Billy Hughes uh, deliver long-winded speeches. Um, uh, and uh, then on the eve of the battle, Pershing finds out that there are still 2,000 Americans with the Australians, and he loses it and uh, says they must be pulled out. So this is relayed to Rawlinson, Monash's superior, and he calls Monash while he's doing this tour with um, Billy Hughes and says um, it's come from headquarters, from Hague's headquarters, that the remaining Americans have to, have to pull out as well. And Monash says, if the Americans are pulled out, it's not going to work. My men will be, uh, you know, I'll be under strength. My, my, and my Australians will be at risk. Uh, if the Americans are pulled out, then we cancel the operation. Well, Rawlinson uh, doesn't want the operation to be cancelled because it's going to be on his head. So he tries to contact Haig to see what, what should I do? Should I follow through with this order to uh, have the remaining Americans pulled out. And Haig's at, the, at that time on the road travelling from Paris back to his headquarters in Normandy. So the hours are ticking by and the Australians are already moving up 
into uh, to position for the attack uh, on the night of uh, July the 3rd. The operation will actually be launched at 2 a.m. on July the 4th. Mine had actually chosen July the 4th quite purposefully uh, to, um, uh, for the sake of the Americans. Of course, it was American Independence Day, yes. and he wanted to give them a victory. And he wanted this to, uh, you know, to uh, ring right around America, that the American press would say our troops have had their first victory on the Western Front on Independence Day. So um, uh, the hours are ticking by, and uh, finally they get through to Hague, and Haig, uh, to his credit, he doesn't want the operation to be stopped either because he can see great, great potential in uh, the battle, in the techniques that Monash is uh, using, and also in uh, great value in Monash himself. And uh, so he has promised uh, Pershing, who confront, has confronted him over this, this thing about Americans going in with uh, British troops, and he has promised him that uh, they will be pulled out, but he breaks his promise. And he tells Rawlinson... Uh, yes, let it go ahead. So uh, Monash has been waiting with bated breath, and he's, he's given Rawlinson a deadline. If, if the, uh, the word doesn't come through by 5 p.m., I'll call the operation off. Well, 6 o'clock comes, and, and uh, finally Rawlinson rings and says, uh, Hague says, go ahead. So uh, the operation is set to go, go forward on July 4th with uh, uh, about 7,500 Australian uh, frontline troops, front troops uh, 2,000 Americans. Uh, and uh, and the uh, uh, support from the Australian and uh, British aircraft and thousands of Australian and, and British guns. So uh, this concept that Monash comes up with of combined arms that we've, we've mentioned, uh, it, it seems so logical to us today, yes. uh, but it hadn't occurred, occurred to anybody prior to that. So what he came up with is that the infantry had to be inter- integrated with the artillery who had to be integrated, uh, and had to be integrated with the tanks, and they had to be integrated with the aircraft. And in this long, long uh, multi-point plan he'd come up with, it was set timings down to the second of when uh, the artillery would start firing, and when it would cease, when it would start moving its range forward, uh, when the infantry would go in, when the tanks would go in, uh, what the aircraft would do and when they would go in. And what he did, uh, uh, the task he chose for the Air Force uh, there were two tasks. To the British aircraft, he gave the task of dropping ammunition by parachute uh, to the advancing troops, particularly to the machine guns, the Vickers heavy machine guns, uh, w- which ran out, of, ran out of ammunition very quickly. So this, uh, the Australian, uh, Australian Flying Corps, an officer had come up with this concept of, because um, we're, we're, we're talking biplanes and, and triplanes in, in the First World War, uh, he'd come up with this concept of uh, uh, fixing crates of ammunition underneath the, the lower wings of uh, Australian aircraft and at the pull of a lever which would normally drop bombs these crates drop down parachutes deploy and they parachute down and it worked really well so very quickly he teaches this technique to the British pilots so that's their job to drop the um, ammunition the Australian Flying Corps they have two tasks as the tanks are moving forward. Now, the tanks are very noisy, yes. and so the Germans can hear these coming. But not as the Australian aircraft fly really low over the, the trenches as the, the forces are moving forward. And their noise uh, of their engines will drown out the sound of the tanks. Uh, the Australian aircraft will then strafe and bomb the German trenches. Uh, and then the Australian aircraft will remain in the vicinity uh, as top cover to protect the British aircraft as they are dropping the, uh, parachuting the ammunition in. Uh, so you can see how all the elements 
uh, were meant to work together. And this isn't the first time that uh, tanks had been used, but Monash's approach is quite unique for this time. In terms Absolutely. Of, in fact, yeah. in fact, uh, a year before the, the Battle of Bulaco, uh, Australians had gone in with the support of British tanks. Um, but the British tank commanders had this uh, paranoia that they weren't going to send their valuable tanks <clears throat> into battle uh, when uh, artillery was firing. They were fearful that their tanks, uh, which were very vulnerable from shells landing directly on top, their fuel tanks were actually on the top. Which was a very you know, clever design. They did. Uh, so um, uh, at the Battle of Bulacore, that they had only sent their Mark IV tanks in with the Australians on the condition that there was no artillery support, uh, and this proved horrendous. Uh, my great uncle Ned Searle, who would uh, fight in the Battle of Hamel, was involved in the Battle of First Battle of uh, Bulacore, and was only one of eighty odd members of his uh, battalion to survive. Uh, and uh, the Australians achieved their objectives, took the German trenches, the tanks were supposed to come and support them. Some got lost, some got bogged, some got knocked out by, by, uh, by the Germans. And, um, and meanwhile, there was no artillery support, because they'd had this agreement that uh, the Allied artillery would not fire on the same ground that the tanks were operating in. So the Australians were forced, when the Germans counterattacked, which they always did, the Australians were forced to, um, to run back to their own lines under a German uh, artillery attack. And uh, so the Australians hated tanks. So when Monash tells his own troops, uh, we're going into this battle at Hamel, and uh, you're going with, in with tanks, there was almost mutiny in the Australian ranks. And my great-uncle Ned Searle was one of those <laughs> bloody tanks, he said. And um, uh, so to try to get them used to uh, operating with the new Mark V tanks, which, which were much... Uh, uh, looked the same, but uh, a much more improved design. Um, and this would be the first time the Mark Fives were used on the Western Front. The Australians got first first offering. So um, uh, a week or 10 days before the battle, the Australians were sent to behind the lines to, to play with the tanks. And so they did uh, mock battles and played with the tanks and uh, got to ride on them and in them. And, and they got a bit more uh, confidence in them, but not a, not a huge amount of confidence. But the... the, the uh, uh, the key was that Monash convinced the British tank commander, General Courage, what a great name, uh, General Courage uh, still had this thing that we can't send the tanks in with the artillery firing, and Monash convinced him uh, that the artillery was so precise that uh, it would move forward before the tanks arrived on the scene and the tanks wouldn't be hit, and which proved the case. So he convinces them uh, that uh, they will go in with the artillery firing. Um, and I mentioned earlier that uh, Monash was an artillery officer first and foremost. And so uh, he comes up with this plan for the artillery. They start firing well before the, the infantry go in in the early hours of uh, July 4th. Um, and he's been doing this for a week before the battle. So the Germans in the opposite trenches have got used to, uh, at uh, uh, leading up to, uh, to 2 a.m. in the morning, this artillery bar barrage coming from the Australian lines. And uh, so, uh, you know, the, the, the shells start coming in, they go into their dugouts and just close the door and wait for the barrage to end. Then they come out and, um, uh, you know, they prepare for battle. But what uh, Monash does in these preliminary uh, artillery barrages every day for a week, there's high explosive shell and there's also gas. Yeah. The Germans started using gas, but we were just as bad. We copied them. And so we were sending gas over with the high explosive. 
So when the Germans came out of their, their bunkers at the end of the, the barrage, they always came out wearing their gas masks until the gas cleared. We you know it could take uh, an hour or hours. Uh, so um, on every morning, except the morning of July 4th, this barrage comes over with high explosive, um, with gas, and also with smoke, smoke shells. And the, and the smoke would mix with, with the, with the uh, gas, mustard-coloured gas, which is where the gas got its name, mustard gas. And, um, but on the morning of July 4th, uh, Monash very cunningly orders the artillery not to send over gas, but to still send over the smoke. So over goes the high artillery shell, high explosive shells, and the smoke. So the German, Germans see, uh, seeing the smoke floating around still think there's gas, and they come out in their gas masks and stay in their gas masks. So when the, the Australians uh, who have, been, have crawled forward from the front line and are lying out in no man's land, when they rise up to launch the attack and uh, go at walking pace, because it's, uh, it's uh, night time, uh, there's a fog, uh, and uh, so they, they walk into the attack with the, the tanks coming up behind them and the artillery uh, firing ahead of them in uh, uh, step by step. This is a creeping uh, barrage. So the Germans are in ga- creeping barrage, there you yeah. go. Um, and uh, so the Germans are still in their gas masks. And can you imagine trying to fight in a gas mask? Oh. Um, and the Australians are not. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They're like Superman. Yes. They appear to be Superman. And uh, too late, the Germans realise you know, that uh, as, as the Australians uh, come in over the, the top of their, their, uh, their trenches, uh, they've been fooled. So this is you know, a very clever little trick by Monash. In terms of the infantry assault, there were five brigades allocated to the assault of that? Yes, and these are these are uh, Monash's favourite uh, mm. brigades who have done the best work on the on mm. the Western Front. Uh, he had four Australian divisions. Um, uh, for the next battle, he he was able to get the the fifth Australian division uh, from Flanders at that at the time of the Battle of Hamel. Of Hamel the, the fifth division was still at, uh, in Flanders, um, and this made uh, the Australian Corps the biggest corps of any on the in the British Army. Normally, a British Corps had three divisions. He had four, mm. but he picked the best brigades the ones that had done the best work. And these were the same uh, brigades that had, uh, you know, that had fought on, on Gallipoli um, and the best battalions. So we're talking about battalions like the 15th and 16th uh, battalions um, uh, who had uh, you know, done exceptional work um, on the Western Front prior to this and had you know, enormous experience, four years of, of, of battle experience. Talking about the battle itself, the operation commences... 2 a.m. The yep. uh, the artillery starts off as a creeping barrage. The infantry move ahead. How did the battle go? It occurred in sectors. Yeah. So uh, on the we're talking in front of, of several kilometres. Yep. And uh, um, uh, Manish has given them, given his troops, uh, a time limit of 90 mm-hmm. minutes uh, to take uh, a front several uh, kilometres deep. And this is unheard of. Uh, you know, but, you know, a gain of a yard or two on, on the Western Front prior to this had been considered good work. Um, but he's given them 90 minutes. And uh, so, as I say, they went in at the walk. And um, uh, in the north, uh, of course, the Germans were totally surprised. Their, their intelligence had let them down. In many cases, they didn't even know it was Australians they were facing. And the Australians were feared by the Germans. Um, so they, uh, many... The Germans, when they surrendered, were, were, came out speaking French, uh, thinking they were, they were being um, attacked by French troops. 
uh, and they're saying, yeah, camarade, camarade, and yeah, merci, merci, thinking they're up against French. Uh, so in the northern sector, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, objectives are met uh, fairly easily. Same in the south. In the centre, uh, it was not so easy. Uh, and there was a place called Pear Trench, uh, and uh, uh, horrific fighting went on around this. And uh, because the artillery uh, had got their uh, range wrong, and they had not uh, succeeded in destroying the wire, so in front of the trenches, you know, with this horrendous barbed wire, um, you know, uh, kilometer after kilometer of it, and uh, the Australians in the in the centre found that the wire still existed, and they had to get through it. And so um, hundreds of Australians were mown down trying to get through the wire. And uh, it, it took some acts of insane bravery by Australian troops to, uh, to overcome Pear Trench. So in the centre, uh, it, it, uh, it was much slower. Uh, but in the end, uh, the Australians reached their objectives, which was a ridge uh, behind uh, the, the town of Hamel. Uh, they reached the ridge... Uh, and to, to Monash's great support, uh, disappointment, remember, he, he, he gave them the objective of achieving uh, the ridge uh, trenches in 90 minutes. They did it in 93 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> great disappointment. Yeah. So uh, they, they and the Americans pushed through and uh, achieved their objectives. And now the Americans are operating with the Australian battalions. Uh, and so they um, uh, are literally... Uh, uh, platoon by platoon, uh, sorted through the Australian units. So they're working side by side. And often uh, when there's a, a problem, there's a machine gun nest uh, behind the wire that's causing them great troubles, uh, it'll be a couple of Australians and a couple of Americans that just jump up spontaneously and run forward together. Uh, another case, uh, each American unit was given an Australian runner. In one case, the American uh, lieutenant, uh, lieutenant uh, in command is shot down by machine gun fire. The Australian runner, a sergeant, uh, jumps up and takes command of the American unit and leads them forward. So, and they wipe out the American, uh, uh, the uh, German machine gun nest. So the Australians and the Americans worked, you know, so closely together uh, in achieving uh, their objectives. So by uh, the early hours of the morning of July 4th, all objectives have been achieved. But uh, uh, that's only the first half of the operation, because uh, Monash knows that the Germans will. Uh, launch a massive counterattack to try to retake the ground that they've lost. Uh, and, of course, they do. Uh, and also, come the daylight, German aircraft will come over the battlefield and, and try to strafe uh, the, uh, the um, Allied positions and so on. So, uh, you know, phase two of the battle is hanging on to the ground you've got. And as I mentioned, the Battle, battle of Bullecourt, um, the, the Australians achieved their objectives, but they were driven out by the German counterattack because they didn't have artillery support. Uh, so this is a very nervous time Monash's headquarters. He'd actually managed to get a little bit of sleep uh, before the battle, uh, but he's sitting at his, at his headquarters waiting as the phones ring and the telegraph taps out uh, for each uh, report from each division uh, as to how they're faring in, in the battle. And he's sitting there drawing, doing doodling drawings and uh, patting a, a German, a captured German dog that's become his pet. Um, uh, and you can imagine the, you know, the the tension in the headquarters yes. at uh, at, the, at Chateau Bertangle, uh, which is the the kid headquarters of uh, uh, the Australian Corps. And uh, that's part of a problem with regards to the uh, the counterattack is uh, the supply of ammunition. And this is where the air force and the the carrier tanks come in. 
exactly. So mm. he's got uh, Mark Five uh, mm. uh, battle tanks, but also there are um, uh, yeah, the, the, the uh, British Tank Corps has uh, carrier tanks. Mm. And this is basically a, a, a tank uh, with a flat tray at the back, so yeah. a, a small cab at the front uh, with a couple of crewmen. And uh, so it's a, it's a truck on, on tracks. Yeah. So, um, so uh, throughout the uh, the early stage of the battle, these carrier tanks have come forward and, and they've dropped 4.5 tonnes of uh, ammunition and barbed wire yeah. and, uh, and so on um, at drop-off points. Yeah. And so the Australians can move back from their, uh, the, uh, their uh, positions they've taken uh, to collect this ammunition. And uh, uh, there's one very famous, uh, uh, who, uh, one uh, uh, Australian soldier who will become very famous uh, for doing uh, Jack this, uh, just this. And this is um, Harry Dalziel from Queensland. He's from the Atherton uh, mm. Tableland. And he's with the 15th Battalion. And uh, he's, uh, he's gone in uh, and uh, in the initial attack. He's then given a... Um, a Lewis gun to take over. He nicknames it Tilly Lewis, and and I speculate that he must have had it. No, no, Tilly Lewis back yeah. in uh, back in Queensland. <laughs> Call it Tilly. <laughs> so he's got Tilly the Lewis gun, and he runs out of ammunition, and he's been pushed forward of the of the front line up on the ridge, and so he crawls back to uh, Australian lines, and then he crawls down from the ridge, and he finds one of these ammunition dumps to, to, where the carrier tanks have dumped ammunition, grabs a box, crawls all the way back, he's shot at and, and shelled all the way back, finally gets back to, to uh, Tilly, uh, the Lewis gun, opens the, uh, the box, only to find it contains grenades. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he got the wrong box. So he crawls back to the Australian lines, yeah. distributes the grenades amongst his friends of the 15th Battalion, crawls back down, and on his way... Uh, a little earlier, uh, yeah. I, I should proceed this by yeah. saying, a little earlier, um, uh, several young Germans had come through the smoke when he's firing his, uh, yeah. his Lewis gun with their hands raised, and he sees a youngster of about 15 or 16, and uh, two Americans nearby rise up, and they've got to go and uh, bayonet yeah. the yeah. young German. And uh, Harry Dalziel says to the Yanks, don't you dare, I'll shoot you before you do that. Uh, let him, uh, take him back, the, the captain might have questions yeah. for him. So... Uh, uh, on his second uh, run back down to the ammunition dump, um, uh, he's wounded. And so he yeah. goes to the, uh, the, the nearest uh, field uh, dressing station. And while he's there, he sees the same young uh, German uh, being, uh, uh, having his wounds dressed. Mm. And then he sees an elderly German whose foot's been blown off. And the German, uh, an American comes over to him and says, uh, hey, buddy, you, uh, that old German guy over there... Uh, wants a word with you. And uh, he goes over to the, the German and the German says in halting English, thank you for saving my son. Oh. And so the uh, the young 15, yeah. 16 year old had been the son of this, this German who's had his foot. Wow, playing. what a story. So Harry now uh, goes back to the ammunition dump. This time he, time he, make, he checks to make sure he's got ammunition <laughs> for the uh, Lewis gun yeah. and he crawls back up and um, uh, reaches his gun, and uh, when the counter attack comes, he, he's firing away. He takes a bullet in the head and uh, collapses beside his gun. And uh, the next day, after the German counter attack has finally fought off, it's quite desperate. They they take uh, some uh, one section of Australian trench at one point, and the Americans uh, drive them out. And uh, but finally, the German counter attack is, is driven off. So Americans, particularly the American engineers of the 108th. Uh, their job is, uh, is to go around and uh, collect the dead and uh, uh, they come across the, bo the body, they think, of Harry Dalziel and as they're about to drag him off to, to be buried, he moves and groans and despite this dreadful headwear. And um, uh, Harry's taken back and uh, he's in hospital for many months. Um, but he, he survives. 
uh, with a, uh, a very uh, uh, slender piece of skin over the, the section on his uh, in his temple, mm-hmm. uh, which for the rest of his life, uh, the rest of his life, uh, you know, if he touches it, he can he can feel his brain. Um, uh, and he so he survives. And uh, Harry is one of two men in the battle who awarded the, uh, awarded the uh, Victoria Cross. The other being uh, Jack Axford, I believe. Jack Axford from Western Australia, yes, yeah. and uh, he uh, he did uh, equally uh, uh, brave things, and he was with the, the 16th Battalion. Now, I mentioned my uh, great-uncle, Ned Searle. Hmm. Uh, he was one of uh, three brothers uh, from Westbury in Tasmania who went off to the Great War uh, very early on. He was wounded twice at Gallipoli, wounded again by a shell on, in Flanders, and then... Uh, then he's shot on a patrol through the hand, and uh, he's recovering in, in Britain. And the metacarpal bones usually will knit between six and eight weeks yeah. after they're broken. And, uh, but strangely, he's, uh, he's in hospital for eight, eight uh, weeks, uh, eight months, I think you've heard. And uh, the doctors can't work out why his, his, no, his bones aren't knitting. And after the war, he tells his grandson, my, my cousin, uh, that every time the hand looked like it was going to knit, he'd go to the corner of a table when people weren't looking and go, bang, and smash it again so he didn't have to go back to the front. But after, in uh, 1918, in the spring, when he hears that his mates in the 15th Battalion uh, have uh, uh, halted the German advance on the Somme, uh, he starts to feel guilty. So he goes back as a sergeant and uh, goes back to his old unit, only to find that nobody he knew is there. They're all fresh faces. Uh, So he goes back determined to win the Victoria Cross. He wants to take this home to his, his, his family. His girlfriend has dumped him. Wynne Watson, his girlfriend in Tasmania, has dumped him uh, with a Dear John letter. Uh, his two brothers who went to the war with him, one was killed on Gallipoli, one was killed on Flanders. So he's feeling very bitter. So the only th- thing he uh, uh, thinks will uh, uh, good thing that can come out of the war is uh, if he can go home with Victoria Cross. So he goes into the Battle of Hamel, determined to either die or, or win his, his uh, medal. So when the time comes in the, in the uh, initial advance, uh, and uh, the 15th Battalion is uh, being uh, uh, held down by um, a uh, German machine gun nest. He thinks, right, here we go, here's my tan, here's my chance. So up he runs and uh, he rushes up to the, the lip of the German trench uh, and lies underneath it with the barrel, hot barrel of the German machine gun uh, above him at the gun's firing. And he throws two grenades into the trench, waits for the explosions and goes over uh, with his bayonet. And um, uh, those Germans he hasn't killed, he captures. So he, he uh, captures the entire uh, machine gun uh, det- detachment in the, in the trench. Uh, and then if the rest of his uh, men uh, join him from his platoon, uh, he makes the Germans uh, uh, disarm and carry their own machine guns back to Australian lines. Once he gets back there, he looks at the, Ameri- at the uh, German uh, uh, lieutenant in command he says, hmm, you're about my build. He said, uh, strip off. Uh, I want your uniform <laughs> as a souvenir. And the German officer protests, and he says, but you know, this is a conventions of war. Yeah. He says, no, no, no. So he forces the, uh, the German to uh, strip off his uniform, which does fit him perfectly. Um, so you can imagine, uh, he, this isn't very popular when it gets, gets back to his commander, <laughs> uh, that he treated a, an officer in, in this way. But nonetheless, uh, a recommendation goes forward that he receive um, uh, a medal for his uh, his work. Um, he goes back uh, to to his unit and, and continues to fight on, and, uh, and and is involved in it. 
uh, stopping the counterattack. So um, he does indeed receive a medal, uh, but uh, uh, he gets the, the uh, military medal uh, and not, not the Victoria Cross as, oh. as he'd hoped. But, but as I say, I think the fact that he <laughs> treated the German officer <laughs> Uh, in the way he did, uh, probably didn't uh, count well. <laughs> the objectives have been secured. We've held off the counterattack. It is judged a success? It is. The word uh, reverberates around the Allied armies. Yeah. It gets to Paris, where the French Prime Minister, uh, is, um, is uh, French President, receives this news. This is the first Allied victory yeah. on, the, uh, on the Western Front since yeah. the German offensive. Yeah. He rushes... Uh, to congratulate Monash. People come from everywhere, journalists, uh, people like, uh, uh, I mentioned Field Marshal Montgomery yeah. uh, as, a, as a colonel. He comes to, to, to uh, congratulate uh, uh, Monash. Um, and, uh, and of course, uh, Rawlinson and, and uh, Haig are delighted. He's, he's proven his theory. He's shown how it's done. And uh, as a result of this, uh, he's uh, given almost carte blanche to come up with the, the major... Allied offensive, which I mentioned earlier, which mm. will involve the Australians, Canadians, British, and French, uh, which uh, culminates uh, the following month in the Battle of Amiens, uh, which is uh, uh, again uh, a, a staggering success, a swift success. It's a it's a hammer blow, and the Australians then lead the way all the way to the Hindenburg Line, and push through the Hindenburg Line, and uh, uh, by October the, the Germans are secretly suing for. Uh, for an armistice, and yeah. which comes into effect uh, in in uh, November. I have to ask: Did Ned get the girl? No, sadly, <laughs> uh, he came home. Yeah. He he did uh, he did marry a local mm. girl back in yeah. Westbury, Tasmania. Yeah. Uh, but he kept throughout the war. He mm. kept a photograph of Win mm. uh, in his pocket. Uh, uniform pocket and when uh, Craig Searle, his uh, his grandson, my cousin, was going through. Uh, the family photograph collection to help me uh, yeah. with the first book I wrote about uh, the Searle brothers. It was called Crack Hardy. Yeah. Uh, it was published in 2011, became a, uh, a bestseller right around Australia. Um, uh, he came across this photograph of Win, Win Watson, which Ned had kept, even though he'd married and had two kids. Uh, he kept this photograph of the, uh, his first love. Mm. And it, uh, so it actually appears in, uh, in, in my book, really? uh, Crack Hardy. Mm. Um, so yes, he he, I don't, he 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 never got over being uh, by dumped by, by Win. He you know he'd he'd signed up in the first place. Win had uh, had broken up with him, uh, and he um, after his brothers had signed up a month before, he went to visit her in Hobart. He was a school teacher, and he uh, knocked on her door and dropped onto his knees and said, "Please forgive me. Um, I have uh, signed up. I'm going to off to fight uh, at the war." And, but uh, uh, yeah, please say you you wait for me. And she she forgave him uh, for his uh, discretions. I think he was chasing other girls, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was a hard, hard drinking, hard smoking, hard swearing uh, Aussie larrikin, and hard girl chasing. Yeah. And uh, so she had forgiven him uh, for, for the umpteenth time. Uh, and he th- he thought the war would be over by Christmas, as most people did. And he yes. thought he'd, you know, it would be easy to come back and claim his yeah. his uh, the love of his life. But uh, of course, four years passed, and uh, he was still at the front. But Ned eventually did settle down after the war. He did, he did. Um, his war experience uh, made him a, 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 a model citizen. Mm. And when he came back, uh, he, as I say, he went back to his hometown of Westbury uh, in the, the north of Tasmania. And uh, he became the local ambulance driver. Mm. He was only one of two people who had a driver's license. Mm. And he'd uh, learnt to drive on the Western Front uh, after his third wound. 
uh, he was transferred uh, temporarily to what was called the uh, traffic, control, uh, traffic Control Department. Nice. And they were the, the forerunners of the military police. And uh, they had a, an armband with TC on it. And uh, they uh, initially, their job was to direct traffic behind the lines, but they became involved, as I say, more as military police. And, um, and he had to learn to drive a, a traffic control truck to move around between the, the various areas where they were assigned. So he became the ambulance driver for, for many, many years in, uh, in uh, Westbury. And um, he went from becoming a train killer to a, a lifesaver. <laughs> That's a good way to end a story, I think. It uh, is indeed. Yes. Stephen, thank you yes, so sure. much for your time. And it was a pleasure talking to you. Got thank you, Peter. And listeners, you may find notes on the episode, including links to Stephen's webpage at our website at www.podcastaustralianmilitaryhistory.com. You can also find the Australian Stories from Military History podcast on Facebook and Twitter. I'll be looking forward to presenting another episode to you in the next few weeks, although I am trying to factor in the Christmas and New Year silly season here where I'll be discussing Indigenous participation in the Australian military since the Boer War with Dr Noah Reisman, who has contributed to the book Serving Our Country, Indigenous Australians, War, Defence and Citizenship. I'm Peter Flapman, and thank you for listening.